Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journalist Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Noah Weisberg and Dr. Alexander Hudek. They're the authors of AI for Lawyers, How Artificial Intelligence is Adding Value, Amplifying Expertise, and Transforming Careers. Guys, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So Noah, I'll start with you. Could you please tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to write this book with Alex? Sure. I am a co-founder with Alex and the CEO of Cura Systems. And Cura Systems is one of the leading legal artificial intelligence companies. Prior to doing this, I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer at Weil Gottschall in New York. And I spent a lot of time in that job doing work that it didn't seem like I should be doing. And then as I got more senior, supervising people who were doing work that it didn't seem like they should be doing, that they took a ton of time at, that they made mistakes at this work, and it was vastly expensive and clients hated paying for it. And thought there was opportunity in the sort of massive room for improvement that existed. And started to think about contract review and realized that it fit the theory very well, that lawyers spent vast amounts of time reviewing contracts, that they made mistakes doing it, but that they tended to be looking through contracts for the same things over and over again. And was lucky to get together with Alex as a sort of technical co-founder. And we started building Kira together back in January 2011. So uh, we worked for years. Uh, turned out our software was a lot harder to build than we anticipated. It then turned out to be a lot harder than we thought to convince lawyers to try it and use it and do work differently. But we kept pushing through and we went from being a four-person company in 2014 to eight people by the end of 2014 and 30-something people by the end of 2016 and over 100 people in 2018 when we raised our first outside capital. And today, we're, there's nearly 200 Kirans who are still pushing, trying to get lawyers and companies to better understand what's in their contracts and better review their contracts. And most of the world's largest leading law firms use Kira, as well as a whole bunch of places that aren't that large, but have the same problem where they're reviewing contracts and know that they could be faster and more accurate at that work. So Alex and I have worked together for a decade. And one of the core things that we've seen come up is just lawyers have a lot of understandable hesitancy around using AI in their practice and practicing differently. And we think it, we thought it was really important to make two points. First of all, that AI is here in law practice, whether you like it or not, that many lawyers are using it already and more and more lawyers are going to use it. So whether you think this is a good thing or a bad thing, it's not really a choice. It's going to be part of law practice. And we thought it was something that was very important for lawyers to just understand that that is the world that they now live in and the world that they're going to increasingly live in. So that's piece number one. But then piece number two is that artificial intelligence can actually be really great for lawyers. And instead of just stealing lawyer jobs, it can make lawyers have a more profitable career and a happier career where they're able to accomplish more with this technology and just provide better value to their clients and do things more interestingly. And so we hope that we'd be able to get that across in the book as well. We also thought there was just real room for a book that was very easy to read and fun to read. Like we were thinking about someone picking up our book 
like a partner at a law firm picking up a book or a law student on a Sunday afternoon and spending three or four or five hours with it and getting value out of it and having a fun time. Like we know a lot of American lawyers who are kind of very forefront in our mind thinking about this are hourly billing folk. And so their time is like literally money. And we felt like writing a book that they would spend some money on, but more importantly, spend some time with and that they would get good value out of that time. And it would be kind of fun. And so that's really what we sought to do with the book. And I definitely want to get back to hourly billing in a second. But Alex, I'd love to talk to you. So Noah has actually practiced law. He knows what firm culture is like. What was the most surprising thing to you as more of the tech side coming in and serving this audience? Has there been anything about the legal community that's really surprised you as you built these tools for them? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I guess as most people who are not lawyers and who have uh, don't have a lot of experience interacting with lawyers, I had a whole bunch of preconceived notions about you know how law worked and about how legal language worked, and I didn't know a whole lot about how lawyers did their jobs. I think one of the most striking things, though, was that I was under the impression that legal language is very formulaic and very standardized because it kind of reads very robotically to a non-lawyer. That turned out to be a horrible, horrible, bad <laughs> assumption. And it turns out that legal language is, in fact, incredibly nuanced. And uh, that made a lot of the technical challenges around machine learning a lot more challenging than I had initially thought. I think when I uh, met Noah, I said something like, oh, yeah, probably in a couple of weeks or a few months, we can get a good prototype with some off-the-shelf tech. And uh, that did not happen. <laughs> I can attest from my time serving the legal community that, yeah, they care a lot about language. And the more you get into, uh, you know, what the fallout can be from imprecise language, the more you understand why they're they're like that. And you really address the hesitancy that many lawyers feel basically when confronted with any new technology, but something about artificial intelligence genuinely seems to spook the wider community, not just lawyers, but people in general, and they start thinking about robot takeovers and, and all of that. So when you are meeting with someone from the first time, maybe they're from a, maybe they're from a mid-sized firm, and you need to make the pitch and they're scared. What are the big concerns you usually hear coming from them? And how would you respond to them? I'll, I'll let Noah take this one. So I think the core, uh, lawyers tend to raise a whole lot of good objections. Like what if the software makes mistakes? What's this going to do to training? What about client confidentiality? Like there's many important ethical concerns that people raise. But to me, the core thing that you have to do for lawyers is explain to them how this fits into the economics of their law practice. So centrally, if you're billing hourly, how does technology that helps you review a contract or maybe do something else if you're selling a different piece of legal technology, how does software that helps you review a contract in 50% less time work out for you if you're someone who bills by the hour? That is exactly the first thing I thought. I'm like, how does this make sense for them if you're saying, oh, well, okay, well, we can slash in half the amount that you're going to bill your client. Exactly. So we find that if you can solve that problem, that everything else 
people, many lawyers have gotten comfortable with the answers to the other questions, right? Around training and security and client confidentiality and ethical issues. And what if the software makes a mistake and uh, lots of other things we go through in the book. And I, I could go through any of those in a bunch more detail if we felt like it, but the core thing that you need to get through to lawyers is if you bill hourly, how is it to your advantage to pay money for software that enables you to perhaps bill less, they think. So like to hear the answer? Please tell us the answer. So the answer is you're thinking about the amount of legal work that you do right now is not the correct way to think about it. In fact, a lot of the amount of work that lawyers do on matters is created in itself by how much the lawyer costs to do the work. So the area that I'm most familiar with is mergers and acquisitions. So I'm going to give an example from there, but equally, we could be talking about litigation. We could be talking about uh, securities or banking work, like so many other areas. I I think even in legal research uh, around litigation, there's examples like this. But as an ex-M&A lawyer, this is the area that I know best. So when I was practicing a decade ago and today, if you are acquiring a company for, say, $400 million, you're going to do due diligence if you're acting for the buyer. And you'll do due diligence on probably somewhere from 50 to maybe 200. Sometimes we hear 500 contracts, sometimes more, but some sort of scope of work like that. Now, that's great, but a company that you're buying for 400 million bucks might have five or 10,000 contracts, not 50 or 200. So what do people do right now? Well, they review the, the most important contracts, the material contracts. So what they'll do is with the target, they'll talk to their CFO or the investment bankers, and they'll say, what are your top 10, 20, 30 customer contracts? What are your critical supply contracts? What are your critical licenses, leases, employee contracts? things like that. Like what are the contracts that financially make a difference in this deal? And they'll review those. That kind of can cost, depending on the firm, like a lot of money. Reviewing, I was talking to one private equity firm the other day who had just had a 50 contract diligence done and it cost them 400 grand, right? So there's real, real, real money there. The thing that lawyers are missing with doing that review and their clients are missing is that there's another type of contract that even though it may or may not be high dollar value, can be really problematic. And that is contracts that say something that make them material, that say something important. And so no one really cares if they miss the change of control clause in their photocopier contract. Like, oh, big deal, you have to pay a fine. Maybe you even have to pay a $50,000 fine. But like, it's not worth the money to go through and review all the contracts. But there are a few things that can infect the buying company and really just explode and be terrible. So five things that I would worry a ton about are exclusivity, non-compete, most favored nation, an uncapped limitation of liability, or a strange indemnity. Each one of those things can cost the acquiring company way more than they spent on the target. And there's tons of examples of those actually playing out that way. Companies that had to divest operations or pay like huge penalties to get out of like bad non-compete companies that ended up indemnifying others for things that they did not expect. And like 
really have caused ginormous problems through not doing this bigger review. And one of the really cool things about artificial intelligence is it, it can enable you to do that review, right? So without artificial intelligence, if you were to do that review, it might cost, like if you think about the cost, $400,000 to review 50 contracts, like how could you review 5,000 contracts if you were doing it manually? The amazing thing about artificial intelligence is that it can kind of change that equation. So it makes it so that you can mitigate more risk on behalf of your clients for the same amount of money or even more. So yesterday I was on a call with one of our subscriber firms and they were saying how they used to bill, say, 300 hours of work on a due diligence project. And their client was like not that happy and would pay them for like 200 or 250 of those hours. So it wasn't a great situation. They'd work 300 hours. They get paid for 200 or 250 of those hours. They started using Kira and they were able to expand the scope of what they reviewed, right? So using artificial intelligence, they delivered more value to their clients. Now they build a client for instead of 300 hours, they build them for 400 hours. And amazingly, the client pays like all of it and is totally happy, right? So they've enabled themselves to bill more hours, but they just do it more efficiently. They're providing the client with better value and the client's happier. So even though they're doing some of the work on the deal faster, that speed is enabling them to do more work than they could otherwise. I'd love to lift the hood a little bit and talk to Alex about machine learning and artificial intelligence. And especially if you are, let's say it's contracts are a big part of your business and you have a really niche clientele, like maybe it's a it's a very hyper-specific, I don't know that we'll still be thinking about this when this episode comes out, but I'm thinking about the giant boat that's stuck in the Suez at the moment. So maybe it's hyper-specific shipping contracts and they come to you and they say, well, we're interested in using AI, but there are all these quirks to our specific niche of maritime law. How is artificial intelligence machine learning able to serve that? So there's really two ways this kind of thing can be addressed. So one, artificial intelligence and, and in particular machine learning, one of the advantages that it has over you know previous approaches, uh, keyword searches and whatnot, is that it is much more robust to changes in language, especially if you teach it on a wide variety of different wordings and phrasings for things. So that already will help you. Now, that won't necessarily go all the way though. If you're truly, truly niche and you have something ultra specific, you know, maybe you're dealing with contracts about propellers or something, right? And you, you wanna find something very, very specific to your domain. Well, obviously, you know, we would not have taught our system about propellers and, and purchasing propellers. However, one of the things that we found was extremely valuable, so much so that it became really a core part of our uh, company's philosophy is, you know, if you make AI accessible to non-computer scientists and non-developers, there's a real power in that. So what we did is that we built a system that allows anyone to just teach the AI whatever they want it to find. Uh, and they do this with a really, really simple interface. You literally just highlight the things that you want it to find and hit a button and it learns from looking at your highlights and learns how to do your task for you. 
So using that, if you were searching for propellers, you could use your own contracts or, or other people's contracts about propellers and you could teach it how to do, you know, how to find propeller specific concepts. That we found had real, real value. And that, that's something that's different about our company and a lot of other legal technology companies, to be fair, uh, compared to other industries. I think uh, when we introduced this feature, it ended up being that many people just asked for it because there's a there is a big need to customize this kind of software in the legal area but you know and also in other areas so those are the two ways that you would address address being super niche and you mentioned other legal tech companies and one of the things i appreciated in reading the book was you guys and i have been talking about contracts because that specifically is what your business does but you also asked people from some other areas like legal research, e-discovery, litigation analytics to come in and write specific chapters about how AI can serve them in those areas. Could you talk a little bit about how you partnered with these outside uh, legal firms and why it was important to you to do so? Sure. The main thing was that we know we're really expert in a certain area. Like, I don't think there are many people who know more about applying machine learning to extracting data out of contracts than Alex and I in the world. Like it's just, we know a lot about that. We also, through that, know a lot about trying to convince lawyers to use AI software because we've been at this for a decade. And we think that a lot of the lessons we learned there are the same as someone who's trying to convince people to use legal prediction software or an expert system has as well right, where you have this core problem around changing the way lawyers work and making them more efficient that people get nervous about. And so we thought that was something that existed across legal AI applications. But we knew, well, we know something about e-discovery and we know something about legal research using AI. We knew we weren't expert on it. And we knew, and fortunately, through having been in this community for the last decade, we knew some people who we thought were really sophisticated on these particular subtopics. And we thought it'd be a lot better to have their voices in the book than to have ours. So we reached out to a bunch of people who we thought were really high quality. In a lot of cases, we gave them kind of a structure of how we felt like seeing the material presented. We sort of were pretty involved in editing it as well but it was their voices because they knew it better. And, and another spot where we did that as well was around smaller law, right? We also have a chapter in the book devoted to how smaller firm lawyers think about artificial intelligence because we knew that for us, uh, while we have some smaller firm clients, it wasn't an area that we understood as much because I had practiced in big law before. And we know that the challenges that smaller firms face are different. So we were lucky to get Sam Glover and Carolyn Elephant to give us feedback and contributions on how to make our material more appropriate for them. Another chapter that I thought was interesting when we're talking about AI in the law just generally is expert systems, the self-service law, and the automation of legal question answering. When you talk about access to justice issues, you know, there's always the call for more lawyers to do more pro bono. But I just don't know that many lawyers sitting around with lots of extra time on their hands or the ability to be matched up directly with the people who need, you know, urgent help on a civil legal matter, but don't have 
the resources to pay for an attorney or don't even know how to reach out to an attorney. So have you guys in dealing with AI in the legal sphere had an opportunity to talk about access to justice issues and artificial intelligence? So I think pro bono is super important as, again, I'm a decade out of law practice, but I still remember a bunch of the pro bono projects that I worked on back when I was a lawyer. So it's great. All lawyers should do it. The access to justice problem is so much bigger than can be solved if lawyers just did their pro bono hours. It's really massive and we need systematic changes. Um, For us at Kira Systems, uh, we build contract analysis software and well, some of our users could be corporates uh, and we can definitely imagine ways that consumers might use a better understanding of contracts in their day-to-day life, like their employment contract, their lease, even end-user license agreements or cell phone contracts or insurance contracts that they sign up to. What we think about with that is more providing our technology in a way that other developers are able to incorporate into their systems. Uh, We have been fortunate to help on some pro bono projects. Uh, One that stands out to us was this past summer, we were able to help Campaign Zero, an organization that's focused on bringing better understanding to what happens in police union contracts and law enforcement officer bill of rights. We were able to help Campaign Zero review a whole bunch of police union contracts and law enforcement officer bill of rights. And that helped them get data out into the world on specific points in these documents and just enable them to do that faster. So we've done some pro bono ourselves. We're trying to make our technology available in such a way that other people might be able to build applications that are even more directly targeted at groups that could use it. But there are other people who I think are more focused on that than us. And we think that's great because there's both great need there and actually, I think, amazing opportunity as well. Like There are a whole bunch of people who are underserved from legal, from a legal services standpoint. And that's an amazing market. It absolutely is. I think about something as simple as, you know, the chat bot that pops up on a website and says, can I help you? Completely. Uh, you know, those can be repurposed to be, you know, can I help walk you through the steps you will need to go through what, for this child support hearing? Here it is. And for someone to have access to that and be getting the you know, specialized, individualized answers to their questions at any time and without needing to pay for you know, an attorney to come with them to the child support hearing, seems great that more people would have access to the specific answers they would need to get justice in their personal lives. Exactly. I think the other thing, so the one thing you need to be tricky about, and we touch on this in one of the, the ethics chapter, is just there are really interesting issues where what you describe interacts with unauthorized practice of law statutes. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a fascinating area that I think we're going to see a lot more cases on, a lot more law review articles on, a lot more uh, probably ABA journal articles on, like it is a really interesting area. But the baseline is that there are, as uh, so a Jack Newton, the co-founder and CEO of uh, Clio, writes a little segment of the book on access to justice. And the point that he makes in there is there's this incredible market opportunity, right? Tons of people are don't get legal services and they need them. And so if we can, if lawyers or legal technology companies can help them get at 
those legal services that they need, there's probably a lot of money there as well as good to be done. And let's dive into the ethics. You know, working for the American Bar Association, as I do through the ABA Journal, you know, it, it seems like ethics opinions come out about new technology. The lag time has been getting shorter, but they really do consider issues for years, literal years. And when you're an attorney thinking about adopting some new technology, you may feel leery about jumping onto a system when you don't feel certain that all the ethics have been thought through. So in your work, and this can be for Alex or Noah, what were some of the ethical considerations that were top of mind aside from unauthorized practice of law, which of course is a huge one? So beyond unauthorized practice of law, which doesn't come up for us as much because many of our customers tend to be lawyers themselves trying to provide better services. Other things that you think a lot about are whether using our software impacts privilege, right? And no, because in the same way that using email or other technology programs like Lexus, or Westlaw, neither do they impact privilege, like what searches you're putting in, nor does artificial intelligence. There's other super interesting issues around training AI on work for one client and then using that those trained models on work for another client, especially in situations where there's potential conflicts. I think the way that we analogize this is it's just like a lawyer working for multiple clients, and that tends to be fairly unproblematic. But I, I do think this is an issue that will launch many, many law review articles uh, and possibly even ABA ethics opinions in the years to come. All right. So law professors, start your engines. There are legal review articles to be written. No, we we made sure to run. Uh, I was I was fortunate at law school to have uh, Professor Stephen Gillers as my legal ethics professor, and uh, he's one of the better regarded legal ethics experts in the United States. And also, I've been fortunate over the past bunch of years to become friends with Richard Moorhead, who's a leading UK legal ethicist, and we were fortunate to get their feedback. And the feedback from Professor Gillers was that it was almost as though the ethics section was like a delicious buffet where he could only have a little plate of uh, and little tastes of each of the issues. And so I, I think we will see lots more in-depth explorations of the ethical issues in there. But we tried to give just an overview of the lay of the land and our thoughts on those issues and ran it by some pretty expert people just to make sure that we're thinking about stuff in a decent way. And there's, there's also a, a lot, you know, a lot of ongoing debates and uh, existing uh, issues you see in the press around use of AI, not so much in the kind of work we do, right? Because we don't, we don't make decisions. Uh, the AI does not make decisions. Ours is just, our software is just a tool for lawyers to help, do the review, but it's the lawyers who are doing the opinions and whatnot in our case. However, in other areas, AI does make decisions. Obviously, in the insurance industry, it does, but also in some court proceedings, you know, AI systems that predict whether or not criminals will reoffend is a great example. And so there's a lot of concern about 
the use of AI in those scenarios where the AI is either making a decision by itself, or even if it's used as part of a decision-making procedure, right? If the AI is biased or whatnot against particular minorities, this is a big issue. So there is a whole host of ethical issues that are already being discussed today and people have varying different opinions on. And I'll be honest, that's what I came to this book kind of expecting to read about because that at the ABA Journal is something that we've looked into, especially when, as you say, uh, AI may be helping make bail decisions or parole decisions and, you know, explaining to people that AI can only be really as good as the, the programming and the data that's put into it. And if there's garbage in, there may be garbage out. You know, it's it's easy to think about an AI decision as, oh, well, this may must be unbiased, but that's not how AI works. But what I enjoyed about AI for Lawyers was that you actually were talking about more of the business case for using AI rather than the criminal justice ethical issues that I had, I had read about. So I enjoyed that. I, I hadn't considered a lot of these angles. And, and one of them, uh, neither of you wrote this chapter, but it was enlightening to me, was on litigation analytics. And the subtitle of this, this chapter is The Emergence of Analytics in Law and Why It's Now Dangerous to Practice Litigation Without Data. And I, I didn't know, Alex, if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. I just found it a really fascinating chapter. Well, actually, maybe Noah is a bit better to comment on this one. Sure, Noah. So I think it being dangerous to practice without AI is a recurring theme of the book, that what was unacceptable and what was best practice two years ago, back when I was a lawyer and totally made sense then, doesn't make sense today because of the change in technology. So I think that's the case with legal litigation analytics, where they can help you be prepared to make your best argument to a judge. And if you're not taking every chance you can to be well prepared to go in front of a judge, that's a risk that you're taking on behalf of your client. And it may not be right. Similarly, you're doing the same thing if you're not using case research software that is as sophisticated as it could be in using the leading technology, because you may be missing relevant cases that could help your client. It's the same thing with e-discovery, where you may be missing or turning over, failing to turn over or turning over and missing documents that were relevant in the case. And it's the same thing in contracts. When I described that $400 million acquisition, $400 million acquisition hypothetical a few minutes ago, it's the same thing where once upon a time, like when I was a lawyer, it totally made sense that we'd review 50 or 200 contracts. But with the change in technology, you're now able to review the entire population and for not that much more money. And if you're not doing that, you're probably placing your clients at undue risk. And so I think this change in technology driving what's best practice in law practice is a recurring theme of the book. And it comes through in that litigation analytics chapter, but I think it comes through in many of the other chapters as well. Yeah, the classic, you don't want to be bringing a knife to a gunfight. That's it. And like, if you were in the time of like, so you got to think about like, if it was a time when like sword fights were the thing, like you're in the 1500s or something like that, like perfectly adequate to bring a sword there. But there's a point when like the game has shifted. You can use different technology. If you did use different technology, 
you could protect your clients better. And I think most lawyers care about providing their clients with the best service they can. And it's pretty hard to do that if you're not using AI right now, even if you're a spectacularly technically competent lawyer. Well, for my listeners who are hearing us talk about AI for lawyers, you did mention you didn't want this to be an enormous tome that people would look at and be like, no, there's no way I'm not reading The War and Peace in my free time. But this is this is a, a fairly short volume. I got it on digital, so I don't actually know how thick it is. <laughs> uh, it, it's pretty person. thin. I think it's I think it's two hundred pages, <laughs> but but they're quick and there's like stories in there. Yeah, it's a fast even. read. Oh yeah, there are graphs, there are graphics. So that's yeah, we even have some fun. like actual picture pictures. <laughs> and if someone wanted to pick up AI for lawyers or talk more to you guys about the book or any of the concepts we've been talking about. What is a good way to reach out and either get AI for Lawyers or reach out to you, Noah, or you, Alex? So in terms of getting the book, it is available where books are sold. I think right now for a lot of people, that means online. I think the best spot to get AI for Lawyers is online. I know Amazon provides quick and fast shipping, but uh, other places do too. So your favorite book delivery mechanism is the way to go. And it is available in both physical format as well as electronic format. The physical copy looks really good. Again, it hopefully will be a quick and easy read for you. You feel like talking to me, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm also on Twitter at at NWASB, N-W-A-I-S-B. Yeah, and I'm I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter, and my Twitter handle is uh, AK Hudek. Well, thank you to both my guests for joining us, and thank you to you, my listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.